This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. What's going on? Well, a couple things. Uh, you know, we had the uh, the Gunslinger event, which uh, was the the first full use of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. You uh, organized that last Friday night. We had 400 plebes in the auditorium uh, showing a little clip from uh, Top Gun. And uh, we had Graham Scarborough, the Proceedings Author of the Year 2019, who is a Super Hornet Weapons Systems Officer, talking to them about naval aviation and carrier aviation and weapons and tactics instructors and, and Top Gun, the movie versus reality. And so that was a that was a huge hit. I dare say we made some tailhook Navy people at that event. That's awesome. He did a great job. It was a lot of fun. And to see the Jackson Taylor Conference Center Auditorium, the Lockheed Martin Auditorium at capacity was uh, just an amazing sight. Yep. Uh, our CEO, Pete Daly, took a video standing behind the, the, the back row. Uh, well, actually, our, the director of our foundation took that video. Oh, was that Heather? Yeah, Heather? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so edit that part out. Yeah. But we had a video from the back of the auditorium just watching the plebes go into sort of, uh, you know, che- just starting to cheer for the movie when it, when it started. Yeah, to so roll. we started Heed's presentation with the the opening to top gun and the sound system in the auditorium is is next level i mean it's like amazing dolby 5-1 subwoofers you know 18 inch subs and it, it, the, it just booms and so we cranked it to 11 and it's like you're on the flight deck and you know that movie won an oscar for sound and now i get it yeah because if you're watching this on your dvd or your blu-ray at home you don't get it uh but here in the jackson taylor conference center it's a next level experience and so the plebes literally were pumping their fists at every occurrence that you know it was uh, justified in that little because we showed it until it's actually an a7 that comes aboard enterprise and it says present day indian ocean and that's where he, you know, the, the stage went to black and then the lights came on and he came walking out. So we were afraid that they thought they were going to watch the movie, right? Because here we show the opening movie and they're all excited. And I'm looking at the guy who runs the conference and I'm like, oh, no, they think they're going to see the movie. <laughs> the whole movie. The whole movie, right? And so when we went to black, we were afraid they were going to like boo. But when he came out, they actually cheered again. And yeah. so we're like, oh, okay, we're fine. You know, it was great. And then he, he owned them. It was fantastic. Yeah, so we're going to start doing more and more of those. So yes. a, a kind of a monthly occurrence, maybe. Well, we'll figure out what the periodicity is. I, yeah. I owe Pete the answer to that question. But we're very happy to assist the training side of the Naval Academy with this series, this gunfighter series. And we want to make it kick ass. You know, that's the bottom line, yeah. you know. And, and so we're off to a great start. 
Yep. And to prove that our love is not just for the Naval Academy and the Navy, uh, I'm super happy and excited to be going to uh, up to the Coast Guard Academy in New London this Friday. Uh, so I'll be uh, I've, I've been asked to speak about uh, professional writing, about speaking truth to power, about the power of the open forum and about proceedings uh, to the uh, annual ethics conference at the Coast Guard Academy. And one of our proceedings authors, Lieutenant Andrew Ray, who is a Coast Guard uh, company commander or company officer up at the Coast Guard Academy, uh, is in charge of that conference. And he was the one who invited me to come. I'm super happy to, to be going to that. And I can't wait to get a, get a chance to talk to the uh, the Corps of Cadets at the Coast Guard Academy. Well, you've been up there before, right? I have not. I've oh, my never, gosh. I've, well, I've, it's, I've, it's a fantastic campus right there on the Thames, not the Thames. Or the Thames. The it's, Thames. it's on the Thames, not, not the, the Thames. Thames. Right. right. It's and, and, the same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right across the river from Groton. So you, right. you might see a yeah. sub or the two come, base, come yeah. either going on deployment or coming back from deployment. But it's a really cool campus and the cadets are very enthusiastic about everything, including the Naval Institute. So I love going up there. It's always a lot of fun. Well, I look forward to it. So um, let's, let's uh, get right to our guests now. Um, on the show, we talk a lot about essay contests, and the Naval Institute has been running essay contests since the late 1870s. Uh, and we, we run about you know, nine or ten of them per year, and we love our essay contests for a lot of reasons, great content, but also because they tend to skew younger and more active duty in terms of the authors. So we get a lot of JOs, we get a lot of senior enlisted folks writing for our essay contests, and our guests this afternoon are the winners of this year's Naval Intelligence Essay Contest, which is co-sponsored by Naval Intelligence Professionals and also by the Naval Institute. Uh, so joining us from San Diego is Lieutenant Kyle Craig, uh, and joining us from down under from his professional exchange program tour with the Australian Navy is Navy, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Shane Halton. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Absolutely. So, Shane, what time is it where you are? I mean, what's the time difference here? It is uh, 7.05 in the morning, the day after what's happening in the United States right now. So you're, so you're calling us from the future. Or 15, actually, right now with daylight savings. You're calling us from the future. The future uh, yeah. or the past? The future's yeah. looking bright. All nice right, good. Good to know. <laughs> and also, of course, Kyle is the returning champion at the podcast. He's been uh, uh, on the show before. So he's, also a, he's a, re- a veteran. A repeat offender of our essay contests and proceedings. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, uh, just to, to hear from you guys how you teamed up for this, because it's a SWO and an intel officer writing for the Naval Intelligence uh, Essay Contest, which is an interesting pairing, and I, I love to see that. So let me just start by reading a little bit of the, um, the start of your article, and then we can get into the meat of it. So you start off, one way to categorize Naval Intelligence professionals, officer, enlisted, or civilian, is to think of them as one of three types, Warhols, Kennans, and Murrays. Warhols are named for the late late artist Andy Warhol. They produce the bulk of the intelligence briefings and reporting and represent most of the workforce. Their day-to-day routines rarely change. Then you go on uh, to talk about the Kennans. Um, The Kennans are named for American diplomat George Kennan. He had a long and varied career in diplomatic service before and during the Cold War. He's probably best remembered for his 1946 long telegram 
And then you say the third is the Murrays, named for Scottish lexicographer James Murray, the Oxford English Dictionary's first editor. So with that background, uh, let me go to Shane first. Uh, just what, what made you think about naval intelligence people in terms of these three typographies? The, um, one of the jobs I have here is actually to do sort of an introduction to naval intelligence for uh, Australian midshipmen or people who are recently graduated from their intelligence school. And uh, I've been using the Warhol analogy in terms of, you know, is intelligence an art or a science? Obviously, it's a little bit of both. But one of the things that I say is if it's an art, it's a lot more like Andy Warhol's art, as in it can seem somewhat um, repetitive and self-referential, but also it does require you to be engaged creatively with the process all the time to keep it fresh and interesting and i compare that to like a a landscape painter who puts uh, 10 years into a painting and it's exquisitely detailed and it's going to cost a a million dollars it's going to sit in a museum forever but it's too much work frankly and we need to be faster and we need to be more adaptive to our situation so warhol is a better model um i honestly came up with this three-part framing kyle and i came up with this partially as a critique to what we saw as a whenever naval intelligence professionals are discussed they tend to be discussed as though we're all homogenous that we're all sort of the same type and that we all do the same kind of work more or less in different contexts and i I honestly thought that that the three-part framing gets you a little closer to the reality which is that depending on where you are in your career and depending on kind of your personal um preferences you end up doing three kind of very distinctive jobs uh and those i think been kind of nicely into the warhol Kennan, and murray uh categories that you, you discussed before so uh kyle you're a surface warfare officer not a naval intelligence officer um what what brought you into this uh you know, into this project what was your interest or spark for this uh this particular article other than the fact that you'd written very successfully for, for proceedings and for some of our essay contests uh so up front, it was just one having some bandwidth while I'm I'm going through school here and seeing the essay contest and thinking, well, I'd, I'll try for that. You know, it's a nice prize. And I was kicking around ideas here with Shane, and we'll talk about how we got to that. But uh, he was like, "No, your idea is dumb. You should think about this Warhol Kenneth Murray thing." And I really liked it. And while I am not an intelligence officer before, um, I spent some time on a carrier uh, at the end of my second tour and got a lot more of the flavor of it than you normally get on your crew desk. And the biggest thing that I brought to it was trying to apply these, you know, ideas to the practical programs that we kind of prescribe in the end, like the SECNAV tours with industry and the Federal Executive Fellowship. So I think Shane had the grand ideas and I was just driving and say, hey, I want to try for this essay contest. And uh, I think that's what, what they serve ultimately in the prizes and everything. Yeah. It's a much better essay because Kyle said we actually have to make some solid recommendations here in terms of uh, training and educational opportunities. And I said, you know what, that's great. Um, so it's it's much better rounded essay because Kyle actually grounded it in uh, something that we can seriously invest in and, and make plans for the future for. So let's talk about those things. What are the where are we deficit now, and, and what are you talking about with respect to the investments that we need to make? Well, I think, you know, there, there's sort of, at, at the high level, you have to think about the distribution of these three types across the naval intelligence enterprise. So I think the majority of folks in naval intelligence officer or enlisted, um, and I'll, I'll also include to a degree civilians in this as well, but this is primarily for uniformed personnel. 
85% or so of them are doing Warhol work, as in they're building a brief or they are overseeing the production of a brief, they're writing reports or they're editing reports. Um, and these reports, these briefs, they fall into certain formats that are largely unchanged uh, as the years go by. And it's very important because they are capturing critical information for commanders and they're, they're driving the knowledge forward for the community. But the work is, is fairly repetitive and standard, and it's honestly on the individual analyst or writer to keep things fresh and to find new and interesting ways to present things. I think about 5% or so, let's see, we have 15% left to play with. Let's divide that evenly between Kennens and Murray's. I do think that there are Kennens out there. Many of them work in the intelligence or information warfare community, and those are the folks who have the big ideas, who have the large structural conceptual framings about um, things like the A2AD question, for example, um, the sort of big strategic thoughts of f- folks you find on the planning staffs and things like that. Those are your Kennens. Kennens are big idea people. And I think for me, the most interesting challenge is what do you do with the Murrays? Because the Murrays are the folks who are interested in information architectures. They're interested in data science. To a degree, they're interested in artificial intelligence. But they're more interested in the sort of back-end processes about how knowledge moves into and through an organization. So it's less about the particular intelligence topic, and it's more about how do we efficiently process all this huge amount of big data that we've got to deal with. I think that Kennens um, get a lot of attention because they tend to submit things for essay contests, for example. It's, if you have a big idea about the Navy or about the world, you do have forums now where you can get out there, you put your ideas out there, and people will give you a hearing, and it's wonderful. And, and forums like um, US and I are great examples of that. And there's quite a few of them uh, across the joint force. Warhols, they're always going to be the bulk of the workforce. That's not going to change. However, with Murray's, we don't do a great job of developing and nurturing that particular skill set. Um, and as a result, I think we're falling behind in terms of opportunities for automation, opportunities for digital transformation in the intelligence space. Um, we are still a very human heavy workforce in terms of what we do. And until we can really find ways to not just train up, but also utilize our Murray population, who are the smallest probably chunk of the pie, we're going to struggle in that respect. Um, That's generally a thought. So that's the high level. And Kyle, if you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the recommendations you had for internship programs and where we can sort of make impacts with folks. Specifically, we had to target them to the top 1% of what's selectable in specific programs, and then I'll let Shane talk about what's broadly applicable when you go through uh, early accession training. But for that top 1%, uh, programs that I looked at were the SECNAV Tours with Industry, uh, which is specifically to put people in a business setting for 12 months of a shore duty, um, and then tie those companies basically with some rudder steering by the intelligence community to say, okay, this company clearly does big data. Uh, maybe that's Amazon or IBM or whatever. You're more talented in helping to develop information architectures that you can take back to the intelligence community. Or, you know, for Facebook, you're better at marketing and understanding how to consistently replicate something there. You also have, that's at the lieutenant level, more senior at the 04 or 05 levels, you have the federal executive fellowships, which provides you the opportunity to do stuff 
uh, kind of more in the canon realm, you know, stuff like the Brookings Institute is one of those groups that you can come to. US and I as well is one of them. Uh, but you can basically cultivate that concept um, within your career. And then it's only 12 months, so it's not going to largely detriment uh, your specific uh, career pipeline, but it's something that will give you targeted opportunity. One thing that's been really valuable for me in the Fleet Scholar Education Program and going to a civilian institution is seeing a lot of the talent that we have in our civilian academic institutions, like I'm going to at UCSD right now. And with that experience, I'm seeing people who were going through the internship process throughout the summer, uh, whereas I didn't necessarily have to do that being active duty, but who are looking for jobs and have a lot of different talents. Um, obviously, there's classification discussions that you have to scrub down to get people to show different formats or ideas uh, specific to what the intel community can do. But I think there are opportunities where someone can go from grad school at UCSD and then maybe spend 90 days working with a, an intel maritime operations center and say, hey, I think this PowerPoint slide might look more readily apparent here, and here's the scientific paper that says this is what is more attentive, besides just what maybe Admiral so-and-so liked. So that's some of the stuff that we talked about. So I was uh, I was talking with uh, or, or emailing with a, uh, a fellow retired Navy intel officer who is out in um, uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School in, in Monterey, and, and I was shocked to hear that there's over 170 information warfare community officers in postgraduate education uh, at, uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School. So that program is not one of the things that's recommended, I, I would imagine, because it's already being implemented, right? There's a lot of Naval Intelligence officers and other information warfare community folks there. Um, but how, how would your recommendations differ from what what is being offered already to the IWC in terms of postgrad education or opportunities uh, in, in Monterey? Yeah, so I, I um, am aware via secondhand having some friends who'd gone through it, the NPS program, which I think is fantastic. Um, generally, it's a really good core skills training. Um, again, though, all of these programs start with the, uh, the basic idea that intelligence is sort of um, there's one type of intelligence professional. And we all kind of have need the same exact skill set and there's no real need to specialize or differentiate. So I think right off the bat I, i've got an issue with that because it's just not been my experience having done this now for on the enlisted and officer side for 17 years is like folks <laughs> they do fall into these categories broadly um and i think folks can can argue a little bit about the categories or argue a bit of the distribution um but i think having that conversation a little earlier on about hey if you've got a flair for this particular type of job, you know, we'll offer that opportunity. If you want to go in this route, we'll do something a little different um, and not just assuming a one size fits all mindset. Um, so absolutely do not want to throw any shade on any of the existing programs. I'm glad that we have so many uh, professional development opportunities in Naval Intelligence. Um, and honestly, having spent a little bit of time on Monterey, that's it's just a fantastic institution. Um, and you really, one of the things you get at NPS that I think is, is a huge value add is the ability to just um, work with other members, not only in, in the information warfare space, but have a cross pollination across different communities. And that's uh, irreplaceable, frankly. So there's, yeah, I don't want to take anything away from NPS. Um, but I would say that even at the basic level, as you're entering the intelligence community, you're coming out of the enlisted training, you're coming out of the officer training. I would love to see some discussion of these typologies 
early on in someone's career, just if nothing else, just to frame them so that when you move into the fleet, you can start to identify, okay, this, this workforce is working primarily in this mold. These guys over here are doing something different. And this third category over here. Um, and maybe there's more, maybe I missed some. Uh, but I, I think that broadly we, we tried to capture all three of those in the paper. And, um, that's my recommendation is early, just introduce these concepts to folks and then allow some specific professional development opportunities around the primarily 03 and 04 level for officers. It's a little different for the enlisted folks. It's a little harder, frankly, to pull them out of their career tracks for professional development opportunities that aren't just like a one-day course. Um, and that's a, that's a challenge, right? Because so much of what we do in the intelligence community, it, we're only able to do it because of our really talented enlisted workforce. Uh, frankly, intelligence officers often are managers of intelligence analysts who are enlisted, which is a little different in the Australian side. I've noticed over here, their officers tend to be the analysts, but in the U.S. it's very much um, the enlisted folks are the analysts and then officers provide a managerial level, an editorial level, basically. It sounds to me like your initiative here is to codify what, may happen organically across an intel officer's career uh, so i'm just thinking of the two data sets that i have nearby are bill hamlet and bill bray so i i think they kind of did that across the 30 years that they were in the navy um with the different tours you know some seal teams some air wings some staff and each one of those incorporated the i think different elements of the three possibilities that you're talking about but it just kind of happened de facto. It wasn't a deliberate thing against what you're talking about. Um, so is that right, Bill, do you think? Is that part of it? or, or I, never, is I, never this thought, a, I never thought of myself as an Andy Warhol. but uh, Yeah, but you know, it, as an air wing AI, you were an Andy Warhol. You were making briefs for Oh, all the time, aviators, every day. Right? Eight, yes. Eight events, yes. ten events so, a day, right? Try hello, to, try to McFly, keep it, you were a Warhol, try to right? Keep, try to keep a it Definitive, fun. wouldn't you say, Shane? That's a definitive Warhol job. <laughs> I think so. I think if you're in a position where you're producing more or less the same product every day, but at the same time, you're under pressure to keep your audience engaged, right? Yeah. Uh, pilots are wonderful. Non-threat uh, of the day brief kind of thing. But they're very busy, right? They've got a limited attention span, so you have to do... What? Come on! This isn't about slamming aviators, damn it. <laughs> That's not where we're going to take this podcast. ways to keep, them, keep your audience engaged, right? So that's on you Faster, funnier, the briefer. Yeah. Right. And I think that's where Warhol, as a, as, we didn't just choose an artist at random. We chose someone who worked uh, over decades in very similar veins and managed to keep the work fresh and interesting. So, well, I, I love. I, I got to uh, point out for our listeners who haven't seen it yet. Uh, the this the the opener we we always call the the lead image in any article in a magazine the opener and the opener we used here uh, is a picture of Lieutenant Craig. Um, over, you know, what is it, 10 different iterations of colorisms and, 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 uh, it is a, it is a Warhol-esque It's fantastic. Image you you it, want a big blow up of that on your wall. Yeah. That should be the first thing people see when they come to your house. But, but our art director came up with that. Oh, she, yeah. you know, she read Karen Eskew, who is fantastic at what she does in, in um, this could command top dollar on but, eBay. But this is a this is a pretty cool image. We got we got uh, Kyle's image, and then she replicated it ten different times, kind of like a you know an Andy Warhol thing. Absolutely, Campbell's soup or or Marilyn Monroe. You know, right? It's Kyle Jagger. Craig. Kyle Craig, yeah, Jagger. Yeah. 
Um, st- uh, talk to us just a little bit because yeah, you I never know. Thought of myself as the Marilyn Monroe of the service. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You absolutely are. You are. You are it. Yeah. Um, go in for some of our listeners, and and I just kind of touched on it real quickly. What is a um, a Murray versus uh, a Cannon? Uh, we talked about a lot about Warhol, and I think a lot of people can pull up this image and and see what that is. But talk a little bit more about you know sort of the the different. Um, the different aspects, the type of work. And if you have an example, you know, perhaps you can think of somebody who fits the example of, a, of either a Kennan or a, um, or a Murray in our community. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, there's some great examples out there. Actually, I was thinking of three people in particular with the Murrays, but I would say with the Murrays um, based off of, of James Murray, um, just to go into a little bit of the history of James Murray, he was the first uh, successful editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and he had the mission to basically write the world's first dictionary. And to do so, he had to collect the definitions of words, but also the earliest usage in the English language. So he had a huge big data challenge right off the bat because he was trying to collect definitions and references for every word that was currently in use in England. Um this was hugely challenging and to solve this problem he actually invented a form of early form of crowdsourcing where he went out to the british reading public uh you know in the london times and said hey we're looking for volunteers we're looking for help go into your libraries find these old words find the first references that you can and send us mail us um that reference and so he created a crowdsourcing um approach to deal with this big data problem and For him, I mean, he had a deep love of language and words, but what was really inspiring to me about that story, what really grabbed my attention was, you know, he was at that point one of the pioneers in grappling with just how to manage that much information at scale efficiently. And so when we talk about Murray's, we're talking about the people who are doing the back end infrastructure work to make intelligence possible. If you think about the computer science guys at the NSA, for example, they are pulling in terabytes of data every day and they have to make sure that the report about this particular event is tagged a certain way, has the correct metadata tags, goes into the right analyst box so that the analyst can do their work. But that back-end knowledge management um, is arguably as important if not more important than the analysis itself it also creates the precondition for automation as we move into that space where more intelligence functions can be automated it's really the murrays who are going to lead us there now i think that kennan's uh, you can just understand kennan as anyone who's got that sort of big idea the strategic thinker the last real i'll give you an example i think really um General uh, Mattis is a good example of this, right? He's a guy with a deep learning. Um, he's a, a he's a person who's um, clearly able to draw a lot of historical references, and he's very comfortable talking these big world historical ideas and, and trends and changes. I would argue that you know the authors who came up with the Great Power Competition Framework were definitely in the Kennan mold. The original thinkers who started to characterize the A2AD networks that we see in China and Russia now, those are also Kennans. Anyone who's thinking in that grand strategic sense, um, if, if you, I think if you work most a- folks will maybe overestimate how many of those are active in the Navy intelligence world because I think a lot of folks come in and they think, oh, I'm going to be the next George Kennan. But I, honestly, they will spend most of their time doing Warhol work. Uh, they won't have an opportunity to maybe move, change the world off, right off the bat at least. Yeah, and, and, and Sh- Shane, I'm thinking you know, that the times that I worked at places like the Office of Naval Intelligence or the – Joint Intelligence Operations Center out in the Pacific, the best senior intelligence officers, the best SIOs 
probably went from being Warhols at some point in their career to being the Kennans. They, they had a deep, deep understanding. They weren't the people anymore that were creating the daily brief. They were the people that were guiding it according to some big principle or big idea about how to frame an idea and how to sort of um, I would categorize it in a way that you know you 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 got buy-in from the, the the commander, for example, from the COCOM commander, or from the CNO, or from you know people at that level. Certainly, I think that's that's absolutely the case. You can definitely evolve into those roles, but I also think you have to have a passion a little bit for thinking at that level, at that sort of level of abstraction. Um, and yeah, there's there's quite a few of them out there. Uh, although I do still think that they're probably no more than ten percent of the entire naval intelligence enterprise, just based off my experience of, of of walking around. Most folks are in the trenches doing the the day to day work, and that's totally fine. Um, but that's just yeah, no, I think how the distribution within the community yeah. works. It's definitely not a one third, one third, one no, third. No, no, I think I think you're right with the the proportions there. You know, five to ten percent is in this category. So, but we believe it should be a one third, one third, one third. Is is that? No, I no? don't think so. I think actually what will happen over time okay best case scenario by 2030 we're in a world where the murrays are better trained better empowered more capable of improving workplace efficiency through automation to a large degree and what they've done is that they have automated away some of the low-hanging warhol work the stuff that doesn't require a lot of creativity and that is frankly just um you know just sort of grunt work so if the Murrays are empowered, what they're going to do is reduce the total number of workforce required overall. But that's really going to come out of the Warhol hide because the Warhols right now, you know, again, they are doing the grunt work. So um, the really talented Warhols, there's always going to be a space for them, right? There is always going to be a space for folks with backgrounds in graphic design and presentation um, in the visual arts because they need to make what they're presenting to, um, to their commanders gripping and engaging. Um, really good presenters. They're always going to have a role. But the lower level stuff, we can and should be automating a lot of that away just for efficiency's sake, um, just to be able to process the huge amount of information that, that we have to deal with. Over time, um, we're looking at more power to the Murrays and reducing the amount of Warhol work for humans anyways um, out to 2030. That would be my that would be the best case scenario for us, uh, I think. So Kyle, you mentioned early on that your interest in intelligence was born of your exposure to the civic on a carrier uh, while you're doing crew des stuff so as I'm thinking about that and, and I spent some time you know on aircraft carriers and my last tour in the Navy uh, fleet tour was as CAGOP so I worked very closely with ships Intel and the different so it strikes me um, that at that level, the best you get, even with an 06, is glorified Warhol. And, and so yeah. um, you're not looking to that billet to be change agents or back-end coders or anything like that. So there are certain career paths um, where it doesn't seem like you're ever going to get out of the Warhol side of it. Shane, check me on that as well. I think yeah. that's completely, yeah, completely true. Yeah, I, I was... I was honestly shocked coming from a DDG and a cruiser to go over there and from, from the small boys, you have maybe an IS chief, maybe an IS one or two. And that's, that is your Intel contingent on, you know, a, a 300 person ship. And then to be the LNO on a carrier and walk into civic 
and see dozens of ISs all doing things to present briefs every 12 hours or four more frequently. It just seems like, yeah, there's a lot of grunt work that's happening, but obviously I understand those are milestone billets uh, that you have to hit as a CAG AI um, or, you know, a ship's, uh, excuse me, a IWC N2 or N21 or whatever. But I, I think the Murray piece is really important that uh, Shane brought up as far as a digital talent management that we need to really strive towards. I mean, as this article came out, we had like one guy who I served with on that carrier tour who just finishing up his uh, master's in, I think, computer science or, or with a thesis on artificial intelligence. He's an intel officer work, talking to his detailer. Hey, I want to use this to, you know, make the intel community better and faster. And basically was told, we don't really have a job to do that specifically. So I know that's one anecdote in a broader Navy, but um, the experience there being that it's, it's going to be on, you know, senior leadership to identify this as a valuable item and then pull the people out who are expressing both interest and talent in the, that realm. Yeah. And I've seen that story repeated a few times, again, uh, from personal experiences working with folks who do have backgrounds in machine learning and artificial intelligence or computer science who are in the intelligence community or adjacent to it. And they're in the information warfare community and they really struggle to put their skill set to use. And that is, I think, one of the major challenges for us in the, in the talent, talent management space. Well, I think some of that is the change is going to have to come from the bottom up, not top down, right? So if I'm, you know, uh, your average 06, 07 is probably not a digital native. Increasingly, they will be. But if you come to me and go, I just got a master's in this and now I know how to do this back end work, um, you're going to have to frame it in here's the immediate problem I can solve if empowered to do so. Right. And, and I'm yep. thinking of the last time I was at Fallon, we started using, um, you know, actually digital products to to make kneeboard cards. And, and we actually tried to do first gen animation for the flow of a strike. And it was really rudimentary, but it was pretty amazing because what we wanted to show is where the blue on blue potential was as the timeline evolved and only through dynamic sort of seeing it would it make like real tangible sense and and it, it was effective but it was also very raw and we did receive some criticism from the top gun guys there it's funny you mentioned that shane because there was this one guy in the air wing whose crime was he knew how to do this and it wasn't even his job and, and so we, we sort of co-opted him for 48 hours while we're trying to do this brief. And then my CO was like, I want to be the first guy to brief with this tool. And, and so this, the, in fact, that guy's CO was kind of pissed off ultimately because we basically kidnapped him for a period of time. Um, and there was nobody else in the air wing or the battle group that had any of that skill set. And so I don't know if we've evolved since then. I mean, this is like 1996, 97 timeframe, you know, but. Again, as you say that, I'm just thinking things haven't changed that much where, you know, your detailer, he could be the coolest intel officer ever, the most open-minded guy. He's filling wrecks. He's got billet codes that have to be manned, you know, and so he's going to go, Shane, I hear you, bro. I read your article. Help me out here. I just got to get a warm body into this Warhol job or my ass is in big trouble. We can't solve world hunger on my watch. If Kennens want to get their big ideas out there, they've got forums to do it. They've got the ability to do it. The challenge is for Murray's, they've really got to 
be engaged with the back end to really do their work, right? And to get in there and to be empowered to do that by their leadership, to be allowed to do that by their accrediting authorities in the IT space, that's a much uh, higher hurdle to jump over. Whereas the Kenan, you know, he's got a good idea. He puts an article out there and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's out there. It's being discussed. He feels satisfied professionally. A little different uh, from Murray's. And that's really, like I said, that is the big challenge. From my experience... Because people want to pigeonhole the U.S. Navy into a non-innovation atmosphere, right? I mean, like, we're judged by the tech sector and other people. But what I've seen is if I'm the subordinate that shows up with a an idea that's going to make my boss look good and reduce his workload, I've never seen a CEO say no in, in the face of those elements, we're, we're, we really are capable of innovation if it's framed in a way that you allow your superior to see what the value is, you know? And I think more so than any other dot-com or anything I've done after the Navy, you know, I'm thinking of some of the most innovative fighter squadrons or the centers of excellence. The, the reason this innovation happened is there was a kick-ass J.O. who showed up with all the tools and made it make sense to the C.O., and, and again, nobody's going to say no at the point that you reach that level of understanding. Yeah, this is a slightly different discussion. I think it's kind of a meta commentary on innovation in the Navy. But I do think that you, for junior folks, you have passion projects and you have that passion and energy and they bring that to the command. For the senior level, senior commands, they are often extremely supportive. You run into trouble in the middle range. I think that often there can be a resistance to change or just a risk aversion uh, in the middle ranks. And those are the ones who will often give you the most trouble when you're trying to drive real innovation because, you know, innovation is risk. Uh, To a degree, you have to be willing to change. Um, You have to be willing to abandon a previous paradigm that's not working out anymore. So senior senior leadership, love it. They get it. They want to be change agents. They want to be leaders in this space. Junior folks, if they've got the talent, they want to get out there and do it. Middle range, I'm not entirely sure I see it. I think that, you know, the chief of staffs in a lot of organizations, they have to be sort of the rigid schedule followers. They have to keep the boss on track. And that can be um, not intentionally, but that can sort of work against uh, innovation writ large. But listen, if you want to talk innovation in the Navy as a, as a, a structural problem, Kyle and I could give you a whole other episode on that. That's a whole different conversation, to be honest. Well, we have talked innovation we, on the podcast have. and in the magazine yeah, recently. Yeah. yeah. So we got just time for one more question, which is uh, what kind of feedback are you getting on your article so far? Is this is the idea taking hold are people going hey that I, I like that that makes sense that typology resonates with me uh, what kind of feedback are you getting i think overall it's been really positive i mean a, a, a couple different intel officers who have just reached out to me linkedin or otherwise and been like wow i you know i i feel seen on some level and i that was really uh, a good opportunity uh I'll, I'll turn it over to shane as far as the optimism of turning that into you know, something that's actionable, whether it's a career day as you're assessing or, uh, you know, program specific. But anecdotally, it's been really positive for me. Great. Yeah, no institutional response, really. But from individuals, I've seen it. Uh, I think a lot of folks who maybe are in the Murray category in particular are starting to feel seen, which is great. And they understand that someone recognizes their talent and their plight. The article is called A New Typology for Naval Intelligence Talent Development. 
It is the authors are Lieutenant Commander Shane Halton and Lieutenant Kyle Craig, U.S. Navy. It is the winner of the 2021 Naval Intelligence Essay Contest. Congratulations again for writing and winning, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, absolutely. All right, that'll wrap up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.